Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Happy Father's Day, everybody. All right. Uh, hey, there's a good amount of people here. Didn't know what to expect. Sometimes on down Sundays, we call it Friends and Family Sundays at CBC. I, I, you guys probably know this, but in the order of attendance at churches, just peel back the curtain a little bit. Uh, Easter's number one, Christmas is number two, Mother's Day's number three. Now from the bottom up, <laughs> Memorial Day is kind of the, everybody's at a lake house, and then Father's Day is number two, right? I believe that we need grace to be our guide in all things, so I, I don't think it's because they don't want to be here. I think it's because our fathers are so theologically rich, this should be called Great Commission Sunday, all right? <laughs> They just believe that the church isn't a building, but a people. I don't know why they think the gospel needs to go to the golf course so much, but I know that if revival is going to happen, it's going to be at number eight at Bright or whatever, buddy. All right? Um, no, man. Hey, we're excited to be here. And as we come in this space, on a day that we get to celebrate fathers, we had a great men's breakfast yesterday where we talked about what it means to be a father, had a panel discussion. I, man, I was encouraged by it. I learned a lot from it. It's good that we recognize that God calls us into ways that are different than our culture. And fatherhood's one of those. He calls us to live and look differently than the culture around us, to have different values in the culture around us, because he's formed us and informing us. He said, this is what it looks like when life should flourish. That's what our series is about. It's not about rules. It's about living into God's relationship in the way that he designed so that we might flourish. And so every Sunday we come here, and before we open the scriptures, we say a prayer. And we ask that, that God might shape us. Our, our culture is critical for the sake of me feeling better than others. And we want to contribute to the conversations God having today with us, with you. We have a phrase that I like to say, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. And so we start this morning by simply acknowledging God's desire for us. By acknowledging that God is here and he wants to speak to us. And then by simply asking, Holy Spirit, open up our eyes that we might know that you're here and see where you're calling us to live more like Jesus. So let's spend a minute praying. I'll ask you to pray if you feel comfortable uh, for yourself and for me as we open some scripture. God, I'm thankful that you are, just on, on Father's Day, that you're an example of what a good father looks like, what loving kindness looks like, what faithfulness looks like. Today, as we enter into this space and we talk about your name, uh, God, I pray that we see that more clearly. That we see how much you love us and that we see how good you are to us and that we see how much different you are from us because we need that. If you're comfortable, just ask you to take a few seconds and just and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit this morning as we open the scriptures. I ask that you pray for me, that God might use the preparation and the presentation not to show us more of any person, but of his goodness, of his love for you, that you might see it clearly this morning.
pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. My first sermon at Crossroads was 13 years ago on Easter Sunday, everybody. Yeah, I know, you think that's a big deal. I thought it was two until they told me it was the sunrise service uh, at like 527. I realized it wasn't a privilege, it was hazing. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I remember the first time I gave a sermon here, I was, I was pretty terrified. I come from a family that likes to use all God's words, and my parents very much did a, uh, we're not going to stop saying the bad words, we're just going to tell you this is mom and dad words, right? And uh, so I, I've said it before, that an unfiltered Chuck is an unemployed Chuck in the Christian world. And so I was terrified that like a curse word would slip out, you know, and I gave my first sermon and I did good. I didn't say any bad word, I thought. And I get down and this woman comes up to me, tears in her eyes, it was so sweet. I'll never forget it. And she looked at me and she said, that was so beautiful. And I thought, man, I'm great at this, right? She's weep, I'm kidding. God is moving is how we say it uh, with humility. So God is moving, and, and, and I realized why she was tearing up. It wasn't because of any good thing I did. She said, I just wish you wouldn't curse so much. And I thought, what? And I said to her, I, I'm so sorry. I, I don't think I cursed. And she looked at me, and she said, you did. You said the C word. Okay, in my world, there's one of those. I never say it, right? You can fill in the blank if you want to. And I said, I know I didn't say that word, all right? And she said, you did. You said, crap. <laughs> and I said, oh, of course I said that, you know? And it got me down this journey of the ways that we talk about God and the ways that we use our words reflect the goodness of God. And we come from a culture that does whatever we can to say words that mean something but don't mean something at the same time. Because today we have this commandment that we're dealing with. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. And growing up, I was taught all the time, this just simply meant don't curse and use God's name as a curse. I went to a Bible college and we were really good at using other words that meant what the real curse words meant. This week, I looked up some of the favorite Christian kind of uh, durations of or kind of the equivalent of what curse words are. And I'm gonna throw a couple of my favorite on the screen. Here's the first one, we're in Texas, bless their heart. I mean, you can laugh at that. Nobody means that when they say that. You know what they mean. Uh, next one, this one I like a lot, gosh almighty. Like you're getting closer, almost there. Uh, oh, this is my favorite, fudge. <laughs> okay, you know, I, I love it. That is a treat to be enjoyed, not something you say when you stub your toe. I know what you're getting at here, you know. This one I, I thought was great. I've heard a couple times, shut the front door. I know what that means. I love it. Or I think I have one more in here. That's right. Um, I'll get two more. So God bless. Yeah. And if you're really mad, you say God bless America. It's almost the 4th of July. And then the last one is gosh darn it. Man, we're buttoned up against it. I wonder what we do as Christians when we think not saying the Lord's name is vain is simply not taking the Lord's name and making it a curse. See, there are texts in the scriptures that we have to put through a filter of their current context in ours. And sometimes when we don't do our work, it reduces the meaning of what God's trying to tell us to do. And usually we make it simpler, not harder. Because sometimes reading the scripture is good and hard work. We have to understand the deeper things that are really going on. Last night I did a wedding and one of the, the groomsmen said, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And I said, that's like making me pick my favorite kid. It's my son. Um, that, kidding. I said, man, it's probably Leviticus. And he said, Why? 
And I said, because it's really hard to understand sometimes and it seemingly doesn't make sense, but if you do a lot of work and you peel back the layers, what you see is how much God intricately cares for his people on every layer and every detail and how those things then in the New Testament show how good God is in the person of Jesus. It shows that God's intentional about his reconciliation with us. That didn't just happen. It shows that God cares about the little, little, little things. And I need my big God to care about the little things because that means he really loves us. It is a beautiful book about the extent that God goes to to reconcile and redeem his people. I love that book, but it takes work to get there. So this verse, don't take the Lord's God name in vain, I feel like so often we've missed the meaning of this and simply reduced it down to just don't use God's name as a curse. And when we do that, what do we miss? What do we miss about the character of God? What do we miss about how God is speaking to his people about how they're supposed to relate to him and, and, and those around him in, in their world at large? Because here's what we can't do with the Ten Commandments. I'm going to say this every week. Here's what we can't do. When we divorce the law of God from the story of God's people, we don't see a good God. We see a demanding God. All of these laws were given within the narrative of Israel. And if we understand God's intent behind them, they don't become a list of to-dos. They become a list of, like we said, get-tos. Because God is fighting for your good. And this list is a way that he wants you to get there. And so we're going to look today at this command in three different facets. And we're going to look at three different costs that comes with understanding this command. And, and the first one, really, when it says, do not take the Lord God's name in vain, really hit hard in the first century. So let's talk just about that word there, don't take the Lord's God name in vain. That word take there isn't just to, to say. That word take there literally means to pick up God's name and carry it somewhere. And so what would happen in the first century world all over the place in all these different religions, you can see it in the Exodus narrative explicitly, is all of these different gods, lowercase g gods, would have a different name. And they were different gods based on what people needed, whether it was a fertility god or a water god or a, a uh, protection god or a, I mean, fill in the blank here, whatever kind of god that you needed. And so you would pick up their name and you would say their name because by saying their name in a certain way, you got them to do what you wanted to do. It really spoke into a culture that was highly mystic and, and used incantations to tell God what they wanted so that God might do what they wanted him to do. Because what you have to understand about names, in the Old Testament especially, in this context, and even in ours, even though we've lost it a little bit, with names comes power. And with names come ownership. So we see this in Genesis 1. A uh, verse we know really, really well. Genesis 1.28, fill the earth, subdue it. This is God's first words to people. Rule over the fish in the sea, birds of the air, all the creatures that move on the ground. So God gives us the world as humanity, as his only image bearers, and says you're going to rule it, which means we have authority over it. Theological word there is dominion that some people kick around. And then in chapter 2, he explains what that's going to look like. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field, every bird of the air, and this is how they expressed firstly their authority. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. From the very beginning of the creation narrative, what we see is that there is power in naming something. I know it, I have two kids. Recently, my daughter, who is three going on four, I've shared some stories lately, she's coming into her own independence. It started so young. And... Uh, she, she does not have more than one voice. She has an outside voice and no inside voice. She's very loud. I don't know where she gets that from. And so she'll start yelling. And sometimes 
Sarah and I will have to say, her mom and I will have to say, hey, please don't do this. And she'll start like yelling in a very disrespectful tone. To which I'll get down on her level and I'll say, I'll use her name. I'll say, Eleanor, you do not talk to mom and dad like that. And she will look at me and point her finger in my face and say, no, you don't talk to me like that. And then she'll run away. (laughs) Um, I'm like, oh, this is going so well. (laughs) From an early age, we try to tell the people that are under our control that we pick their names. And and, in using their names, it's a medium of control over what we're around. We see it all throughout the New Testament too, old and new. God picks somebody, he gives them new identity, he gives them a new name. It happens all the time. He's, I'm gonna give you this name and this name is gonna confer my authority over you. With naming comes authority. The problem is we didn't name God, he named us. Psalm 8 says it like this. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So if we're gonna talk about the name of God and not using the name of God incorrectly, We've got to have a conversation about what that name is. And the first time we see the proper name of God in the Old Testament is Exodus 3. Burning bush, Moses, he's about to deliver his people for the first time from 400 years of slavery. You probably know the story. And and, and he appears to Moses in this bush. And I'll summarize it. We have a text we can throw on the screen. But Moses says, okay, I believe you're God, but I don't believe I can go to these people. I don't believe I can go to these people and say that God sent me. They remember me, but in a very different context. I used to rule over them in domineering ways and didn't save them and actually ran away from them in the middle of their pain. And so Moses says to God, they're going to ask me your name. What am I going to say? And God says, I am that I am. He said, you must say this to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So in the Old Testament, there are so many different names for God, but all the other different names described characteristics of God. This proper name of God is used some 7,000 times in the Old Testament, and it doesn't just describe a characteristic, it describes the intrinsic nature of God. When it says, I am that I am, the word there is Yahweh in the Hebrew, it literally in the Hebrew verb form means just to be or to exist. It literally means the self-existent one, which is, guys, guess what? How we describe God in any conversation about philosophy or religion or deity. God is saying, I'm the one that has always existed and will always exist. Who do you tell, who do you say has sent you? You say God has sent you the one who exists without any other need for, the one who always is. What I love about this name of God is the meaning behind it. So we didn't give it to him. He already had it in the first place. And there's rabbinic teachings, and even more than that, it's made it more mainstream now. It's four characteristics in the Hebrew. Yod, he, vav, he, right? And and, and so what that literally means, they say, is it most clearly expresses itself as people breathe because the name of God, the four consonants in the Hebrew, sound like a breath. So some writers will go, and I love this, some writers will say that what you see in the name of God is the beauty of the presence of God with the people of God all the time. So the first thing a baby does when he comes into the world is he proclaims the name of God. The last thing someone does when they die is proclaim the name of God. We call them dead when they can no longer have the name of God on their lips. It's this beautiful truth that that Israel needed at that moment. Where is God? And God said, I am. I am here I am with you, I am yours. And he says in that text, this is my name forever and ever and ever. One writer said, the repetition of the same word I am suggests the idea of uninterrupted continuance and boundless duration. 
It's a beautiful picture of who God is for his people. There are a few better illustrations of both God's largeness as well as his humility than this simple idea of the nearness and fully present God. His omnipresence as well as his singular intimate presence with each of us is found in his name that he gave himself that we didn't give him. And what we see in that moment is why names are so powerful because names don't just describe the person you're talking to. By definition, the name of God shows us the activity of God throughout the Bible. Verses like Acts 4. And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. So what in the first century world, what in Moses' time, taking the God's name in vain meant was, hey, don't use God's name so that you can get your way. Don't manipulate God by using his name. You're not in control. He is. And what we begin to see as he's saying, don't carry God's name in a way where you think you have the control is this idea that when we say the name of God in the wrong way, we forget the difference between him and me. When we say the name of God in a way that gives us more ownership over God than God has over us, the cost of that, the way it changes our relationship with God, the way that we use God's name sometimes, if we use it in vain, can cause us to think that God is ours to control, not the other way around. The first thing this is stipulating God to his people is don't fall into the narrative and believe that you're really God and I'm not. Use my name the right way and it will always remind you of our order. Because if you know the story of Israel, they didn't. They got delivered and they thought, look what we did. They went into the promised land and they thought, we don't need God anymore. <laughs> and, and over and over and over again, that made them fall short of and fall into slavery, fall into very difficult times, fall out of their flourishing. God says, please don't do this. It's not going to lead to a good place. And, and you know what? We don't have a lot of magic tricks anymore in our current time and culture, but I do think sometimes we use the name of God as a formula to get God to act on our behalf. I know that because I played football in high school and before every Friday night we prayed, God, let us beat the enemy, <laughs> you know? And if you said it the wrong way or the right way, God would give you a victory. I know it because sometimes I listen to health and wealth preachers and if you say the right thing at the right time, God will deliver you. If you don't get delivered, then you did it wrong. Sometimes the way we say the name of God in an improper way it's just a means by us to think we control God and not the other way around, and that's the cost. So, so why is it important to remember to use the God's name in a right way? <laughs> because it reminds us that he's in control and we aren't. If we violate this command, the first thing that's going to go is the nature of our relationship with the God who said, you're flourishing is if I'm on top and you're not. I named myself, you didn't name me. Do not pick up my name for your good, thinking you control me, right? Also, when it talks about don't pick up the name, there's another Hebrew definition for that word. So it's pick up and then it's also to carry. And so in the world of the Jewish people, they would take people's names into battle with them. This phrase actually, don't take the name of God, is, is pretty rare in the Old Testament, it comes up only a handful of times. The next times it comes up is Exodus 28. I'll read it to you. Verse 29, it talks about the priestly order. Aaron is the priest. He says, in this way, Aaron will carry the names of the tribes of Israel on the sacred chest piece over his heart when he goes into the holy place. This will be a continual reminder that he represents the people when he comes before the Lord. 
It goes on in Leviticus 19 to say, don't swear falsely in my name so that you don't profane my name. I am the Lord. So one, we have to recognize that the cost of not understanding what it means by saying God's name in vain is literally the cost of our relationship with God because we don't put it in the right perspective. It's a control issue. But, but, but two, how it impacts not just our relationship with God, but your relationship and God's relationship with others is Israel and us now are supposed to be image bearers of God in the world. We are supposed to take the name of God to people that don't know God. And when they see how we act, they're supposed to say that God is worthy of worship. The question I have is if... We do bad things in the name of God. Do people see a God that's worthy of worship? And so he's saying to his people, he's saying, do not swear falsely by my name, not because you're going to put a blemish on me, but because people won't see that I'm good. It's the whole idea of, I love this question, can you do anything to take away from the glory of God? No, you, you can't. God's glory is not touched by you. You cannot do something that makes God less glorious because your righteousness points to the goodness of God. Your sin, your sin points to the goodness of God. I'm going to use a basketball example because it's been a few minutes since I used a sports analogy and I know people want it. So Luka Doncic is the star of the Dallas Mavericks and one of my favorite players right now in the world. And this dude is legitimately amazing. There's a stat this year that the NBA started keeping track of called wide open threes. So not only do they keep track of Luca and all his assist numbers, they keep track of all the times that he should have more assists and the other people missed those shots they should have made. The Dallas Mavericks led the league this year and missed wide open three-pointers. Here's why I say that. Because Luca's amazing. And if he has 27 assists in one game, meaning he passes the ball to somebody that makes a shot, people say, oh my goodness, this guy's incredible. But now we have new stats that tell us even when the other people miss, it doesn't take away from Luca's greatness. It just adds to the fact that they're not him. So what we can't do is take away from the glory of God. Now, Luca didn't make it to the NBA Finals, so less people heard his name. What you can do is take away from the fame of God's name. That word there literally in the Hebrew, the name of God, name literally doesn't mean glory, it means fame. What that means is, and this is the scariest part, is that we can do things to make God's name not seem as great to people right now. Ultimately, his glory is his. Fame represents his glory being his right now. That we can take away from. If we don't live into the ways of God and call ourselves followers of God, what we do is we don't take away from the glory of God. That is his always and will be revealed. But what we do take away is the fame of God in a world that needs to see it. Because for some reason, (laughs) that most days defies my logic, God made us his ambassadors in this place. God said, I'm ultimately good, and you're supposed to represent that. And so when he says, don't take my name in vain, it has nothing to do with cursing. It has everything to do with carrying God's name into places and not reflecting his goodness. It has everything to do, not with taking the glory of God away, but stomping out the fame of God in the present moment so that people don't see his glory right here and right now like they're supposed to. And I've seen it. I've seen it. It has more to do with action than word itself. I've seen it. I've seen people that use all the derivatives, not to say OMG, but don't live like they know God at all. I've seen it. I've seen people use God's name in bad ways and they burn people up from churches. Most stats would tell us right now that my job, the clergy, pastors, have almost an all-time low in trustworthiness. Two years ago, it was an all-time low. 39%. It bumped up to 40%. Nothing's stopping us now, everybody. All right? Culturally. We have a problem. 
And I think there's a lot of reasons. I don't think you can make it one or two reasons, but I think one of the reasons is, man, there's been some pastors that have done some bad things. There've been some churches that have stood by some bad things and haven't said they're bad in the moment. We're dealing with some, but now in this Christian world. And what we do in those moments is people don't see the beauty of God anymore. They don't see the fame of God. And, and mostly it's because we care more about our fame than God's, you know? And so when he says, don't use the name of God in vain, what we do is we take the fame of God and don't let it be known. We don't let the glory of God be known right here, right now. It's not a new problem. <laughs> Romans 2 talks about it. In Romans 2, he says, you boast in the law, but you dishonor God by breaking the law. As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And look, this isn't some guilt, shame, get better lesson. This is just, man, my heart like your heart is to let people know God's heart. And so let's do a better job of it. There is grace to cover. And you know what? God is bigger than any of my bad days and my bad sermons. I promise I need to know that. But our job, motivated by the goodness and grace of God, is show others that. So let's not take it lightly, but rather run into the places that need God this morning and say, God is good, like all fathers are doing on this Great Commission Sunday, you know? It's a beautiful charge that we shouldn't take lightly to not carry God's name in a way that makes God look bad because that doesn't do justice to who he is. And the cost when we misuse God's name in this way is that when we talk about God, it isn't representative to an ultimate God that's trustworthy. And so people won't trust him. So his command to his people that are supposed to be a light in this darkness of Canaan the command to his people that are supposed to reflect his goodness to the rest of the world and say, live like us, we're different, but it's better. The command to his people is to use his name in a way that only reflects his goodness, not the other way around. So he says, don't carry my name in a way that doesn't reflect my attributes, my trustworthiness, my beauty, and my love for those around you. So we ask questions like, man, does the way we live reflect the God that we know? And the answer to that to all of us is sometimes... <laughs> But it's a charge to keep going because God's worth it. And his name is powerful and his name saves and his name is beautiful and his, his name. So it's a call for us to live out the beauty of the goodness of God in our world so that people trust him because we are the conduits to that. You can't run away from that anywhere and everywhere. We are the conduits so that people might see God. Don't take that, don't take that responsibility lightly. Then lastly, I think a way that we take God's name in vain, the third, so the first one, man, is we equate ourselves with God by using his name as a method or means of control. I think, two, we don't understand that the name of God is the work of God in the world so that people might see the glory of God and the fame of God in the present moment, not just one day. And then, three, I think we live in, in an incredibly flippant culture, and this one's more for us. We live in a culture that has made athleisure wear like the best thing in the history of the world. We live in a culture, and I love some of it, that takes um, good, good things and makes them approachable to a level where they lose their awe, you know? I've done it before, by the way. We live in a culture that overuses things. We saturate the market with all good things so that good things lose meaning. I think love is a great example here. Like, we love everything. So really, if you love anything from tacos to your dog to God, do you, what does love really mean? Hell, heck, ta tacos is a really good example of that. We have lost the definition of taco. I had a conversation with somebody on staff last week, and I said, have you ever ha had a real taco? And she said, torchies? And I said, oh my goodness, everybody. Now it seems like taco is just, if there's a tortilla in the restaurant, I'm going to call this a taco. We don't know what it means anymore because we overuse it, right? 
I think we overuse the word God so, so, so much. We've lost the value, the weightiness of God. Because when it talks about the glory of God, which is what this is all about, the Hebrew word for glory, the definition of it is, it's not just adoration or compliment, it's weight. So a good example that I like is the sun is weighty, right? That's why we revolve around it. It's so dense, it has the most weight. It keeps us in orbit. It centers our life. It commands our respect and our adherence. Glory in the Hebrew has the same connotation of weight. So when we give glory to something, we give weight to something in our life, not just in words, but must be in action because it literally weighs, draws us in. And so I'd ask this question in our culture, do we use God's name in a way that worthily reflects his weight in our world? And this is where I think we take a step away from the world that Moses lived in. And they understood the weight of God's name. They actually got to a point in about 536 or so BC where they didn't even say God's name anymore because they were afraid to. The scribes, when they would write down Moses' writings and the, the Old Testament prophets' writing, and the 6,000 times in the Old Testament that, that this word is used, Yahweh is used, every time if you were a scribe that you had to write that word, you would literally stop writing, you'd go and bathe your whole body, you'd get a new pen or quill at that time, and then you'd write his name. Imagine if you had to write it 17 times in a chapter. You were super clean that day. Because even in writing it, it's not something to be taken lightly because they understood the weight of the name of God, the work of God in our world. That's why in Matthew's book, so the Gospels have different audiences they're written to. Matthew's is primarily centered towards a Jewish audience. He's writing to his people. That's why in Matthew, as opposed to the other Gospels that are more Gentile-centric, Matthew doesn't say the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven. Because in the first century world, they didn't even say the word God when they talked about God. They used other words like heaven or they used other words like spirit or they used other words like because the name of God was so important that you would actually not say it. That's how much you gave weight to the name of God. The uh, Talmud, which is the interpretations of the Old Testament law in the rabbinic culture, says that whoever says a blessing that's not necessary transgresses this commandment. Rabbinic theology, I'll quote a rabbi, the greatness of God transcends all existence, and his name should be uttered only amid feelings of awe and strictly for matters of the utmost importance. To invoke his name for a needless oath is a serious affront to the honor of God. So here's where I'm getting with this. I think we live in a culture that in the name of a lot, a lot of times in the name of authenticity, like we've got to be approachable. We lose the awe of God on the altar of approachability. You know, I do it. Let's go another teaching moment. It was probably a decade ago. They let me teach again, this time on this stage. So it was probably a low attended day like Father's Day. And no, I was, I was introing communion and man, I, I'm so sad about this. I take this one back. I was probably 27 years old, and so I didn't know things yet, and I just wanted people to like me, and I wanted people to get that God is there for you and with you. And, and I remember talking about communion, and the staff still makes fun of me because of this. And, and I go into this like five-minute diatribe on why communion is good and worthy and, and beautiful. And then I said, so take the cracker and pop that bad boy in your mouth. <laughs> and in that moment, I didn't think it was a big deal, but in that moment what I did 
was I reduced the awe of God to not being worthy of awe because I wanted people to feel like they could approach God. I had a Catholic stop me in. Old, he comes here now, but he was Catholic, grown, born and raised Catholic, and, and the table's a very big deal. And he approached me with tears in his eyes. Again, not because I did something good. If anybody approaches me with tears in their eyes today, I'm walking in the other direction, all right? <laughs> he approached me with tears in his eyes. He said, why would you talk about the sacrifice of Christ's body like that? And I said, man, I'm so sorry. I did not mean to. And so the intention there was good. I'm not saying when we do this, we do it on purpose. I'm simply asking the question, where do we sacrifice the awe of God for authenticity or approachability? What's the cost? When we use God's name all the time, then it loses its weight. So the writer says, do not, do not, do not, do not use God's name in vain. Don't misuse it in ways for your greater good. And that's kind of what we get to when we talk about the definition of what God's name in vain means. I don't think it means cursing at all. I don't think the Hebrew writers thought about cursing. I think to use God's name in vain is when you use God's name for your good, not his glory. Whether you try to control God or, or whether you use it for your good in spite of God's character, or whether you use it for your good just because you couldn't find another word to say and we water down the awe of God and the weightiness of God because we can't find another way to say what we want to say. I think it's all about how we use God's name for our good and not his glory. Because our life is more full when God is fully glorified. Our, our world is better when our God is fully glorified. And the way we use his name matters. It builds up our relationship to him. It builds up others' ability to see his trustworthiness. And then it builds up in our world an awe and wonder that can only come from the God who's in control of all things. When we use God's name the right way, it reminds us of his majesty. It restores the trust in his faithfulness to others around us and it reveals his awe in a flippant world. We need to use the Lord's name in the right way so that people see the right version of the God of the scriptures who loves them. And so, as we talk about it this week, it might hit you one of several ways, but I think my challenge would be do two things for me. One is, man, read Psalm 8 this week, every day. It's all about the beauty of the name of God. I think that as this hit me, I need to recapture the weight of God's name. In, in seminary, we had, in grad school and in undergrad, we had preaching courses. And uh, one of the things I like to do You'd take a couple weeks of classes and then you'd get given a date and you'd preach on that date. I would sit in the back and I would write, um, at the top and underline it. And then I would sit there and listen to everybody that said, um, and I'd have an um count. You know, it's one of those words you don't realize that you're saying. And a lot of times you'll say it five, six, 17,000 times in a sermon, especially when you're first starting. I wonder if that's how we say God in our culture. So maybe this week all we do is every time we say the word of God, every time we say God, are we doing it in a way that gives him glory or not? This is what we gotta ask. Maybe as we're walking with our kids or friends or family, we stop when they say the word God and they say, hey, what did you mean by that? And were you trying to give weight to his name or were you not? How were you using God? By that use of it, do people see his greater goodness? That's the question. Because what happens when that happens is we build this culture of people that rightly talk about something that's really good. And I think that increases people's perception of God's love for them. In the first century world, there's a phrase, civis romanus, right? 
So as you walked in your world, if you were a Roman citizen, you'd say civis Romanus, and that meant something. And when you said those words, it meant a couple things. One, it meant that you were more respected than anybody else. I mean, people couldn't touch you and harm you. But thirdly, it was a badge of honor that you belonged to this awe-inspiring empire that made people's lives better. I think in a culture that flippantly uses the word God, I wonder if we recapture what's meant by this commandment, if we can recapture the awe of God in a world that needs to see it. In a world that's lost its ability to trust in God. And in a world where people believe they can control him and they can't. And, And so when he says, don't take God's name in vain, man, it's for your good. It's for my good. It's for our good. So that we speak about something we need and we all see a greater, bigger, more beautiful picture of the God that we are made to worship. Let me end by quoting Philippians to you. And and I love how the the verse ends, if you keep going with the commandment, it says, the Lord will not hold guiltless anyone who takes his name in vain. And all God's doing there is saying, in the end, my name holds up. (laughs) In the end, my name lasts. And you see this in Philippians, when he says, talking about Jesus, God gave him the name that's above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we use God's name, may people see that. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that your name carries with it weight and power and action, that your name carries connotations, that you're in control and I'm not, that your name carries with it a trustworthiness that the world needs to see and an awe that we are longing for. God, I pray that as we use your name every day, that it accurately reflects who you are so that people can see you, so that people can understand who you are, And most importantly, so that people can see and know what you're doing for us. Because when we talk about God, we talk about the activity of God in our world. And might we, as the image bearers of, as the ambassadors of God's good gospel, use his name in a way that reflects who he truly is. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.